Welcome to the Well Child Podcast, hosted by Dr. Sammy and Dr. Anna, two board-certified pediatricians and best friends known as the PediPals. This is a safe space where parents, caretakers, guardians, and those interested in pediatric health can find accurate parenting and medical information to raise healthy and happy children. To stay connected with us, follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at The PediPals, or visit our website at www.thepdpals.com. We are so grateful to have had a successful first season where we invited widely respected experts to discuss important topics. Here's to an even better season two just for you. Okay, welcome back. Today is episode one of our second season of the Well Child podcast. The Well Child started as a little pet project for Anna and I, and before we knew it, we were neck deep in everything to do with PD Pals and have loved every minute. So we want to take a quick minute to thank you, our listeners and our followers from the bottom of our hearts for allowing us into your homes and providing you with advice, tips, knowledge, wisdom, and reassurance when it comes to your most prized possession, your children. So of course, it's fitting that we start off season two with a guest that we are ecstatic to have here on our podcast. Allow me to introduce Dr. Yamileth Kazorla Lancaster, who also goes by Dr. Yami. Like us, Dr. Yami is a board-certified pediatrician, but she is also certified lifestyle medicine physician, a national board-certified health and wellness coach, an author, and professional speaker. She founded VeggieFitKids.com and obtained a certificate in plant-based nutrition in 2013. We have been following Dr. Yami on social media for a while now. And if you're not following her, please do, because she uses her platform in an amazing manner. One of her most amazing accomplishments to us is her book entitled Intuitive Eating, A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, which we're going to delve into during this episode today. But before we do, I really do want to emphasize how unique this book is and how necessary it is. Anna and I have read it and we endorse it wholeheartedly as two pediatricians. I feel like there are no books of this nature that are out there and is a much needed tool for parents to have. If you have wondered how to handle picky eaters, how to balance nutrition with your children, how to, without depriving them, putting them or without putting them on a strict diet and avoiding long-term chronic health conditions while also managing a healthy body image and a healthy relationship with food when it comes to your children, this book is for you. So without further ado, Dr. Yami, welcome, welcome. We've been dying to meet you and have so much to talk to you about. So let's get to it. Yay. Thank you so much for having me. That's such a kind intro and I'm just super excited to be here. Thank you so much. We're so excited to connect with like-minded doctors and professionals. And we, we just love picking, you know, other physicians brains, other experts, and we just love your content and we love everything you're doing and just all the positivity that's around eating and nutrition, because there's so much lacking in that department, you know, and me and Sammy talk about this all the time about uh, messaging for our patients and, and uh, how to promote that healthy lifestyle without being, without it being such a burden and such a, uh, such a topic of negativity. And I think you just do that so beautifully in the book. I don't want to give too much away, <laughs> uh, but before we just ask you all of our questions and pick your brain, um, just tell us a little bit about yourselves, our listeners, and how you kind of came to this, um, uh, to talking about uh, this topic. 
Sure. Well, as you know, everything is a journey. You know, I feel like my introduction into nutrition or more specifically dieting started everything, which is when I was around nine years old, when I tried out my first diet, which was doctor prescribed. And, you know, I've wanted to be a doctor since I was four years old. And it wasn't until later through my own experience of chronic addictive dieting, yo-yo dieting back and forth, binging, restricting that I discovered intuitive eating and shortly thereafter, a whole food plant-based diet. And so I really felt that the diet eating that way, eating more whole plant foods changed my life, but combined with the intuitive eating, that's what gave me true freedom. And then I realized how important it was to share these concepts with other people, because just the simple way of looking at food as whole versus processed and how can we eat more plants in our lives is so simple. Anybody can understand that. And it's super easy for parents to understand because they're so busy and they have all kinds of priorities that they're competing with. So if we just say, Hey, focus on eating more whole foods, focus on eating more plants, two simple directions, but then to take it a step further, how can we make it so that you enjoy feeding your child? How can we make it so that it's less stressful to sit down at the dinner table with your child throughout all their stages of development? And that's where I think the principles of intuitive eating and the division of responsibilities really has come into play in my career as a pediatrician. So I had to apply it to myself first, then to my own children, and then figure out how to do that with my patients and the world. And so it's been a really fun journey. Well, I love it. And I, I was like highlighting, which I know to some people is like blasphemous. <laughs> to, to like <laughs> I love to highlight too. No worries. <laughs> to dog ear and like start to put writing in books, but I was highlighting and I was like, well, Fred, I'm going to like, there's not just one quote that I can you know, use for this podcast. There's so many, I've literally highlighted half the book, but I wanted to read a couple and then ask you to expand on them. If that would be okay. Sure, of course. Thoughts about it. Because again, parents, you have no idea how, um, how helpful this is, but this is a really good one. So you wrote women are more likely to diet than men. And, uh, they are also likely to influence their children through this behavior. At least 75% of women have attempted to lose weight in their lifetimes. That's crazy. Yes. Girls are starting to diet at younger, younger and younger ages. One study found that the desire for thinness for girls emerged at the shocking young age of six. This was most likely to be the case when the girl's mothers were themselves dissatisfied with their bodies. Yes. I mean, it's, it is shocking, but when you think about it, it makes sense, right? Because there's so many of us that we are dissatisfied with our bodies. And when we are dissatisfied with our bodies, two things happens. One, we talk about it. That's called fat talk, which I shared in the book. We talk to ourselves about it out loud, but we also talk to other people about it because we feel that if we talk about it, then it's more likely to inspire us to do something about it. Right. So we're always saying like, Oh, I need to lose weight. Cause it's almost summer or my thighs are too big or, Oh, my pants, my, my butt barely fits in these pants. My butt's so big. And so we're constantly making this, these comments and it's normalized in our society. So that's one thing that happens. The second thing that happens is we diet. Dieting is very normalized. It's almost like 
abnormal if you're not on a diet. Yeah. You know, so we're we're going into summer, so it's pretty much expected that a lot of your girlfriends that you meet are going to be on some sort of restriction. I'm not eating dessert right now, or you know whatever they're doing. And the more we talk about this, the more we embody it the more our children observe what we're doing. And so we just normalize it for them. We normalize dieting. We normalize being disgusted with our own bodies. And what we're saying to them, we're conveying this message that you should be a certain size. There is a certain size that is acceptable. And if you're not that size, you need to do something to change it. And that's so, so insightful. And, you know, Anna and I, even I noticed you also said that you have evolved as a pediatrician in your book. And I love that you are so honest about that because it's the same with us. You come out of medical school, you're so green and you have, you've not had that life, personal, real life experience of the different families and the different dynamics that come into it. And, and we've evolved as pediatricians too. And I was very I was very different in the way that I used the growth chart when I first graduated medical school mm -hmm. and the words that I used, um, to describe a patient. And now I'm very conscious about how I'm even talking because the child is there and you even wrote in your, uh, your book, you know, little ears are listening, little eyes are watching the child is there and you have to be very careful. I don't use words like obese, overweight, morbidly obese anymore at all. And I actually go out of my way to say the number doesn't matter to me at all. I will show you the growth chart because a picture is worth a thousand words, but it doesn't matter where you are. And I know you have a similar approach. It's about the trend. We look at it in a different way. Um, but at the end of the day, you want to just make sure that they're healthy. That's really all it is. The number and the size means nothing. Yes. And it's about habits and behaviors because before I even get to looking at that growth chart, I've asked a whole history, you know, usually this is the well child check. So we're asking about diet. We're asking, we're asking about movement. We're asking about stress in the family before you even get to that growth chart. There's so much information that you can use to give recommendations for ways that families can start to optimize their life or make little tweaks where they they feel like they have access to because, you know, everybody's at a different place in their journey. So yeah, the growth chart maybe adds a little information, but sometimes we don't even have to look at the growth chart because what does it matter if a child is lean or a child is larger? If we know that they never eat any plants, they're constipated, they're having abdominal pain and they're not sleeping, there's things we're going to change, right? <laughs> so, so that's why I always emphasize to my families, habits and behaviors are number one for me. The body size and shape may change based on your habits and behaviors, or it may not, but really the, the objective truth is right here. These are the habits and behaviors you have right now. Are they aligned with a long, healthy life or not? And if not, then are you willing to make some changes? Where can we start? Yeah, so true. And you know, we, we all have been, and I, and I try to approach it now as we've kind of evolved through our practice, like Sammy was saying, to really kind of, uh, you know, we're all guilty of this. Uh, I know I especially have dealt with my, my own body weight issues, my own concepts of dieting, what is healthy, what is not. And it's so interesting because, uh, you know, parents, we're all guilty of it because it's ingrained in our society. And so like you so astutely said, it's just about 
thinking about what truly is health and what is not. So whether your child is at the bottom of the curve or at the top of the curve, the habits are more important because the, the child that's very lean could still be predisposed to having cholesterol and diabetes and all of those things. And so really um, we focus on the weight entirely too much. And, and, and I think healthcare providers, the medical community, the society, we're all guilty of it, you know? So it's just about changing that way of looking at it. And what I loved in your book and what I've started using now is about how um, children being intuitive eaters is their superpower. And I love that because it's so true. You know, it's kind of like we impose our times, our, um, you know, restrictions on our children. You know, this is the, these are the times we want you to eat. These are the things we want you to do. And, you know, we eat in celebration. We eat, of course, food is a big part of our life and our culture and our society. Um, but uh, we, we forget that this is their superpower to know really truly when they're hungry, to know when they physically need food um, or desire food or want food as opposed to being conditioned, you know? And so I love that. I use that all the time because um, the picky eating becomes such a negative connotation. And then when you switch it around and say, hey, this is a positive thing. Your child intuitively knows when to eat. So I would love to get your thoughts about, um, you know, how you deal with, uh, with picky eating because, uh, because, you know, it's definitely a big pain point for parents. Yes. And thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that. And I definitely agree that I want to encourage parents to embrace and support the natural intuition of children when it comes to their hunger and satiety, because it's very, very soon that we start teaching them to unlearn that intuition. And this age group between one and five is the critical time period where 85% of parents try to get their kids to eat more 85%. <laughs> so that means that probably the majority of parents are going to label their child as picky between the ages of one and five, which also means to me that it's a normal part of development. Okay. And I think all pediatricians know this, but I would say the majority of time when I'm going over the history, the parent starts, well, he's getting kind of picky or he's getting more picky, you know, and it's right there around two years old <laughs> where they start to mention that. And when it comes to picky eating, there's definitely going to be some cases that are concerning and we're able to tell families, okay, that's a little bit further away from the norm. There might be an issue there perhaps some sort of medical issue, a genetic or chromosomal issue, some sort of developmental delay that might be, or, you know, other stuff, anatomic things, sensory things that might be influencing the child and their eating so that it can become a serious issue. But that is not the majority of the cases. The majority of the cases, these children are following their growth curve. They're happy. They're playing, they're developing, they're, they're, they're doing great. It's just that when they get to the dinner table, they may not be hungry. So they might take one bite and it's usually bread that they want to eat or the mac and cheese or whatever. And they don't even touch the broccoli. And what happens is that parents panic because they're used to their child eating, you know, whenever you fed them formula, whenever you breastfed them, 
it's like they had this amount, they ate it, they were done. And you were like, good, my, my child is eating, they're getting calories. And then you start feeding the complimentary foods. And there's a period where it's just so fun. And they're just wanting to eat everything. And then they start walking and they're mobile and their job is to explore the environment. They're just so excited to explore the world and go everywhere. And they're constantly on the move. So when it comes to eating, they just want to eat enough to be satiated. They are not trying to have these long European meals, you know, they're not going to sit there and just be like, oh, the chef compliments to the chef. No, they just (laughs) want to take a few bites, not be hungry anymore so that they can do their primary job, you know? And so I think if parents understand that and they are going frequently to the doctor as is indicated in those first few years of life, then the doctor will be able to say, no, they're growing fine. And then the parent can sit back and relax and instead focus on what they are offering the child instead of trying to manipulate the child to eat more or different things. Um, and influencing the child's intuition. So that's where it comes to the division of responsibilities, which I think is another key component of how we can feed our children with less stress and more joy. Yep. Yep. You nailed it. It's exactly what we say. So here you go. Whoever's listening, you've got three pediatricians that live in two different states saying the exact same thing based on their experience, their professional experience. We say, For toddlers, especially, but all kids, you decide what they eat, they decide how much. They're responsible for the amount. And toddlers, their food requirement goes down significantly. You're right. You you described beautifully why, from a developmental standpoint, that they're not going to sit and have a long European meal and give compliments to the chef. So that there are some mistakes that I see that parents make. And not to judge or shame or anything, but but the things that that kind of snowball um, the situation into the wrong direction. One is that they allow their their toddlers to have free reign of snacking, um, so they're kind of like chasing them around the house with with you know goldfish, just like to get anything in their stomach. And when you're doing that, you are um, you're filling them up on empty calories and not allowing them to get hungry for meals filling up on uh, liquids, specifically milk. Uh, We see that all the time. We just really do emphasize that if you're going to be giving some kind of, especially cow's milk, 16 ounces, that's more than enough. Anything more than that, and they're going to have gut issues. They're going to start to get constipated. And then you're going to be having trouble, you know, in in more aspects than you bargained for. Um, And then, you know, don't, don't panic. Like you said, so it's very normal for a toddler to eat well one day, not eat well for another two days. Don't panic and only give them chicken nuggets because they have a different stomach for chicken nuggets. They're always going to make room for chicken nuggets. And then before you know it, they're going to hold out until the chicken nuggets come. And then you've created a real picky eater that will literally only eat three or four things. And another main thing that I, I really like to tell parents is the kids are, like you said, natural, intuitive eaters. The best way to know is when they get sick. Yeah. Ad- adults don't know what to do when they get a stomach bug or when they're sick, when it comes to eating, they have no clue because they've been deconditioned or conditioned and they, they've they just been, you know, like so confused that they are like, maybe I should do the brat diet. Maybe I should do this. Maybe I should eat that. Maybe, you know, and so they just get very confused and they force themselves into conditions that sometimes prolong illness mm-hmm. and kids don't do that. They just won't eat. And that's okay. They're not going to starve. They all make up for it after they feel better. Just focus on hydration. And then when they do finally get hungry, they actually always intuitively reach for the thing that's not going to make them more sick. Mm -hmm. It's not going to make them throw up more. 
I don't know what you think about that. Do you have similar things? That oh, you yeah. Tell your, yeah. No, that was, that was perfect. You're uh, speaking my language. You're preaching to the choir over here. So no, I think that's beautiful. And it's true. I do have to do a lot of counseling when children are sick. You know, hydration is very important. Sometimes we do have to find creative ways to make sure they stay hydrated during illnesses, but don't worry about the solids. And I have children of myself. I don't know if y'all have kids, but I have an 11 year old and a 16 year old. So I've gone through multiple illnesses and I, I laugh every time because the appetite goes down for a few days. Then, you know, the appetite comes up to a little bit more. And then all of a sudden it's like beast mode and they are eating every, it's like three times their body weight. And that is the, the ability of the body to just you know, regulate and balance yourself out and you can just see it. And it's just amazing. And then, you know, you can be reassured that your child is going to be okay. And then this is the way physiologically that the body works and it can regulate itself. But I think that helps parents a lot because we worry and parents get really anxious and we want to do the best. And I commend parents for being the amazing parents that they are and, and caring about these things. I just want to make it easier for you. I want to make it more fun and joyful, maybe because I want my life to be that way. So I'm thinking a lot of more people want their life to be that way. And it can be, we don't have to stress so much about how much our child takes in more about what are we going to present to them? What are we going to fill our environment with what it's going to, what's going to be in their life. And then they can decide if, and how much. You're tuned in to the wild child podcast brought to you by the PD pals. The PD Pals is our passion project and not-for-profit company where we aim to educate and empower parents and guardians and offer you accessible health tips. Our mission is to also support future female doctors. We currently have interns on our team who are all at different parts of their medical school journey. If you'd like to support our mission and help with our podcasting costs, you can donate to our Venmo at the PD Pals or our Zelle, which is hello at thepdpals.com. We greatly appreciate our audience's support. You can also support our interns on Venmo at interns-pdpals. The crux of the situation leads to parental anxiety. I think that's the main point, you know, when we get nervous and the kids know mom and dad are going to cave before I'm hungry again. So I am going to hold out for my fruit snacks or for my goldfish or for my chicken nuggets. So I think you really hit the nail on the head. And so our approach to food and our anxieties on food is really what we have to focus on. And like you, like you so appropriately said, a lot of times us pediatricians are doing a lot of reassuring saying it's normal for their metabolism to dip, for them to not be as hungry, for them to graze sometimes, and then to hoard, you know, eat a bunch of food all at once. So that's all totally normal. Um, and, you know, the, the biggest things that I struggle with, I think in my practice is the practicality. Of, of implementing some of these good food choices, these whole foods, um, and, and staying away from that, you know, the diet or from restrictive foods, because we know kids' bodies are still growing, um, you know, the, and even some of the foods that are available, like grain, you know, whole grain breads are still very processed. There's a lot of foods out there that people think are healthy and nutritious, but then they're devoid of fiber and nutrients. And so uh, a lot of times, and it's, it's so hard, parents are working multiple jobs, they're trying to get food on the table, they're trying to pick ways that, you know, that make it easy for them. 
and they're just doing the best we can. So we all totally understand that. Um, and some ways I try to give them little tidbits, you know, like juice, you don't need it. You save money. You don't need to buy it. It fills them with empty calories. They're drinking their calories as opposed to eating them. And so just get rid of it. You know, let me make that decision for you. Uh, you don't even need it. So certain things like that, I think you can make their life a little bit better. But in your opinion, how do they start implementing some of these um, nutritious foods in their diet and still not break the bank and still be able to do it all, you know? Yeah. Well, I love to meet people where they are, just like you said. And I, and I am a big believer in that it's not all or nothing. I think that uh, perfect is the enemy of good. And I just want people to move towards eating more whole plants. The good news is, is that actually a lot of whole plant foods are actually cheaper than eating other foods. So for example, just dried rice, brown rice, and beans. I mean, that can feed a family, a big family, a lot of meals. And so some of that has to do with time more than money. Do you have time to cook your own rice and beans and, and these kinds of things, but shopping seasonally, you know, getting your, your produce seasonally, that's going to be more expensive looking on that, the discount part of the produce aisle, but really it's not that you have to have a specific food or eating all these superfoods or eating any of these special specialized products, just eat more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, and nuts and seeds. You can go to the bulk aisle. You can go to the discount section. Just how can you implement more of those into every meal and every snack? It doesn't have to be the entire meal and snack, but can we add some apple slices to the snack? Can we maybe start putting lentils in your pasta sauce? You know, little things like that, that you may not even think of until you start purposely trying to find creative ways to put more plants into your meals. Um, and it does not have to break the bank. In fact, you can save a lot of money eating this way. I love it. And you also say that you, you recommend the 80, 20 rule, which again is interesting because Anna and I say that, and then you, you also go on to say in the book that, um, we, we don't, you don't like to label foods as good and bad. So can you explain what you mean by the 80, 20? Rule? Yeah. So what I mean by 80, 20 is that as much as possible, try to make 80% of what you eat be health promoting, like, you know, like eating more whole foods and those kinds of things so that you have some wiggle room for life, you know? So when we go on vacation, we go out to eat on the weekends or little Jimmy has a birthday party and we're going to have some cake and ice cream. That's part of normal life. And especially when the kids are older and they're in school and they're exposed to those things, whenever we try to restrict them purposely, it can create some issues for some children. And that's the same reasoning to not labeling foods as good or bad. I'm even very mindful about not calling food junk food because that can be very confusing to kids. And a lot of this has to do with personality. So some kids you call food, junk food, and they're like, yeah, whatever. Some kids that see the world as very black and white <laughs> and a very, you know, like they just want to hold on to their values and these moral judgments about life. They might feel like every time they eat a so-called junk food that it's hurting their bodies and that it's a bad thing. And it can create some psychological distress. So let's just call it objectively what it is, whole food, processed food. What is a whole food? What is a processed food? What do processed foods have in them that maybe are not 
as health promoting as whole foods, even though there are some processed foods that may have some health promoting benefits that whole foods don't. So, you know, I think having open dialogues with your children, trying to be more objective about it rather than judgmental about it, because it is true that there are foods that have health benefits. And so I want to make that very clear. I'm not saying that we should just eat whatever all the time and that no harm is going to be done if we only eat processed foods. But if we take it to that moral place of this is a good food, this is a bad food, it does start to interfere with our intuition because then we start to really overthink this and it, it makes it really difficult for children that are trying to learn how to navigate food, how to navigate making choices about their food. And whenever we just make it objective, whole food, processed food, or just food, when they eat, they can instead tune into their bodies. What does your body say when you ate five cupcakes? <laughs> you know, did, what did your body think when you did that versus what did your body feel whenever you had three apples? You know, so it's, it's just about trying to put the power back to the child so that they can tune into their bodies rather than putting a moral label on a food that can start to interfere with that intuition. I love the way you explain that. That's really, that's really great. And I think the parents will love hearing it like that. And I actually was even like so deep in thought when you were saying that, because I started to think about my kids and I was like, Hmm, uh, how have I been wording, you know, and I think I, I say junk food for sure. And that makes, I love that you said without saying it with judgment, because, you know, you're right. You know, we want, what we want is, is perfection actually, right? We want kids who are eating well, most of the time. And sure, we would all love to have intuitive eaters. Uh, we would love kids to not have predispositions to chronic illness because of their poor eating habits. But then we also don't want kids to have a dysfunctional relationship with food and then end up having an eating disorder. And that's, you know, a parent doesn't want that either. Obviously, no parent does. And then when they do have a child that has an eating disorder, so many parents feel guilty that they might have contributed to that. Um, and so what you're saying is really powerful in helping parents and relieving some of that anxiety as well, knowing that at the end of the day, we're all doing the best that we can yes. and actually being a little bit relaxed about it and not being super stressed about it is helpful too. And for me, not having guilt associated with eating, uh, yes. is a, is a big thing. Cause I have two girls and like mm -hmm. you said in your book, the conditioning starts really early in their lives. They hear about it at school. They see the commercials just like everyone else. And then eventually they get exposed to social media. And so they, they see what is presented to them that might not necessarily be reality. And, and it's really hard to make sure that they don't go into a direction where uh, they have a dysfunctional relationship with food. We actually had another podcast guest a couple of episodes ago that really helped us with that. She was a recovering um, binge eater, I guess. And um, yeah, she was really helpful as well. So, yeah. and yeah, let me just add to, just like we said before, like, I love you parents. I, I'm so glad you're doing what you're doing and not to linger on feeling guilty or feeling ashamed of how you've been and you're living your life because we all live in the same society. We've been conditioned very similarly and we've all been raised by parents that sometimes pass these um, behaviors down to us. So instead of spending time feeling guilty and ashamed, just focus more on how can you tweak what you're doing now? 
So, oh, I do say junk food a lot. And maybe I talk about my butt being fat a lot, you know? So how could we, how can I stop doing that? Or how can I word it differently? Or how can I approach it so that it's a positive experience for myself and my family so that we can help this next generation not have the epidemic of body dissatisfaction, disordered eating, this really just non-joyful relationship with food in their bodies. I would love to be part of the solution of turning that around so that we can instead tune back into our bodies, have a great, you know, relationship with food and instead start to look at food in a different way instead of just being what makes us thin, what makes us fat, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's completely, the, the same way that we're feeling, you know, and a lot of the way that we word some of these things again, when we try to make parents conscious of this, it's almost like another point of stress, like, oh no, did I, you know, say it this way, but it's not meant to be. Like you said, awareness is key. When you're aware of the habits and you're aware of the things that you're doing, that's when you have the power to really shift that change. And that's, that's so powerful. Um, and, you know, uh, in general, when we talk about um, uh, our relationship with food and body image, um, we definitely have to be very careful as physicians also because we're guilty of talking about some of the consequences that we seek, right? Like diabetes, like cholesterol. And, and that's our job. Our job is to figure out the risk. Our job is to help the families um, determine what their risk is and how they can prevent, um, you know, their kids from going down that same path. And so sometimes I think we're guilty of using that terminology, which creates a little bit more of that fear. And, you know, you talked about this in your book about, um, you know, we approach food and health from a fear perspective, as opposed to a perspective of let's you know, have a balance of things. We're going to have some processed foods. We're going to have some, you know, uh, great foods from nature. Um, and so it becomes that. And the other point that I love that you make in the book is about, um, you know, we might all be living longer, but are we living better? You know, are we living more healthier, more fulfilled lives, or are we having more chronic disease? Um, and so all this, you know, all the things that we see, have tied processed refined foods with some of these chronic illnesses. So um, not to, you know, be another point of fear, but in general, um, just was curious as to some of your research that you've done on what you've noticed as a, a, a you know, about some of the food options we make that are more refined or processed. Well, I think that the research is very clear. The research is clear in saying that whenever we eat more processed foods, it does increase our risk of several chronic diseases. So heart disease, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, cancer. I mean, it is related to the food we eat, but you're right in that if we approach it from fear, if we approach it as this all or nothing, black or white, sometimes we just run and hide and do nothing. So how can we integrate more whole plant foods into our lives in a way that's delicious and abundant and joyful while still enjoying some of these processed foods in a way that, you know, like in the book, in the intuitive eating book by, um, 
Evelyn Triboli and, and Elise Resch, they talk about it as play foods. You know, my, my husband just had a birthday yesterday, birthday cake on your birthday is an appropriate thing, you know, and it doesn't have to be like all or nothing. I'm only going to eat fruit for my birthday, you know? And so whenever we start to look at it that way, I think that we have the ability to make choices that actually support our health rather than it feeling like this all or nothing. If I have one piece of cake, I've ruined it anyway. So I might as well just eat all quote bad foods the rest of the week, you know? So I think that that can be very helpful to that perspective. And then I will say as a pediatrician, I know you guys have experienced this too, is that we see obvious things that happen in kids when the the diet is not aligning with their health. We see constipation. We see chronic abdominal pain. I've seen kids here is very popular here. And I, I live in Washington state. There is a large Latin American population. I don't know if you guys have, uh, have Thakis there in Houston. It's like hot Cheetos, but they're, they're spicy, like fried Cheeto things. Mm -hmm. And I've seen kids that get flat out gastritis and ulcers from them. (laughs) So, you know, yes, it it, it can be a problem, but if you just have one bag of Thakis, you know, twice a month or something, that's not going to happen. If you're eating them all day long, every day, that might happen. So it's, it's just about realizing those things and knowing that processed foods, yes, they can harm us in a reasonable way in our life, they can be part of the joy of our life. Just like we talked about these play foods, but we also have to be mindful and thoughtful as parents of how can we integrate more whole plant foods so that we can start exposing our children to these habits and behaviors. That's a gift that we can give them for their whole life. Once they start implementing and liking and preferring these foods, then they can carry those on in the the rest of their journey. I love it. Well, there were a couple of other quotes and one last question I wanted to ask you. Um, The first was that you wrote, what I want you to keep in mind is that we live in a world full of risk. There's no way to eradicate risk or exposure to things that that create damage over time, but our goal should not be to completely eliminate risk because that's impossible, but to understand how to maximize benefit. And then you also wrote fiber is my favorite F word, which I thought was great. Um, (laughs) And then also uh, remember, if you have gas, smile, knowing that you're feeding your friendly bacteria and you have a whole page dedicated to gas, which I very much appreciate because sometimes I feel like I'm the gas doctor. I'm constantly telling parents that gas is okay. And the last question I did have for you, because it's one that I get asked a lot and I found this fascinating and I know a lot of parents will too. What do you do about the grandparents who are not on the same page as you? Yes. Well, like I said, I've had to learn a lot of this from personal experience. <laughs> Sometimes you, you think about something and you think you're going to react a certain way, but in real life, it's completely different. And so I have the very unique experience and I'm so blessed about this, but my parents live with us six months out of the year. So they're currently here. They snowbird in Panama during our winter season here in Yakima. And so we spend a lot of time. And I think my, my children sometimes prefer to be downstairs with their grandparents and my dad, he's an excellent cook. And so I've had to navigate this personally. And I know that initially, especially when my children were younger, I was definitely that mom that had like a list of things. They can only eat this. They cannot eat that. No, none of this. And if, you know, something was off of the list, I mean, 
I would get so angry and incest and be like, why, you know, they can't have this, no sugar, no this, no that, no that, you know? And so I realized over time that I was, you know, I was probably being a little extreme, but also what's really important to understand is that everybody has their own food, diet, and body history. So whenever I learned this and I learned more about the history of my dad, who's my stepdad. So I didn't grow up with him. I didn't know this growing up, um, but he's my soul dad, my favorite of all three, um, that he, when he was younger, experienced true hunger, true scarcity, um, with him and his family, they were quite poor. And because of that, he never wants my children to feel hungry. And I feel like I'm going to cry because. We have to understand these histories of our family members and why they may be a certain way. Like he has a snack ready for them when he picks them up from school, you know? And I used to get really angry, like, dad, what if they're not hungry? You don't just force food on people. And he's always asking like, are you sure you want more? You want another serving? You want some more? And because he never wants them to be hungry. And so I think it's important to have empathy and to understand that. And then just to have reasonable conversations. So I definitely have taught my parents about intuitive eating. Once I learned about it, once I implemented it for myself and my children, and they're happy to learn about it and go along with it and try, but sometimes they're going to give the things that may not be what I do. And I just have to breathe and let it go because it's okay that our children have different people in their lives that teach them different lessons. But for the most part, they eat with me and my husband and our family. And I just have to feel secure that what I've taught them, the example that I've been for them is good enough, you know, and as they grow and as they learn, they're going to learn from other people and other experiences. And so that's decreased my stress level. And I also think that it's improved the relationship between me and my parents. So it's not this combative sort of don't do that. Don't do that thing. It's more of an understanding and a mutual trust and just a more calm and peace. (laughs) So everybody has to navigate it the way that's going to work best for their families. But I think just softening and having that empathy and love and appreciation for the other people that help care for our children is going to benefit everybody. Yeah. So what I heard was your dad shows love through feeding your children. That's how he shows his love, expresses his love, which I think is applicable to so many grandparents Mm -hmm. and so many different cultures. And All of us, all three of us just here in this conversation have had our journeys with food. Um, I remember there was a time in my life when I was younger that I was on like a no carb thing. I don't even know why, but I did it. And so we, you know, we all have had our, our, our things. And if you think about it, our kids are going to have their journeys too. And like you said, all we can do is give them the best tools that we have, guide them along the way, but know that they're going to veer off some path and have some experiences and then go back to the, you know, the way things were before, and then maybe try this and that. And it's all, it's all part of the journey. So I love that low stress approach with the grandparents. I think for sure fighting them doesn't get you anywhere. Um, And I think it also creates a lot of animosity between people who love you and your kids very much. Absolutely. hundred percent agree. Yeah. And it's about having these meaningful discussions because that's the only way 
we're going to move forward and we're going to figure out what our fear, you know, fear uh, points are and our pain points are. And that's the only way we can even get to the bottom of why we do any of our behaviors, you know, not just grandparents, but parents and aunts and uncles and everybody, you know? So I love that. I, I, we love your message and we love everything in the book. Um, and we just can't wait to recommend it to everybody. But um, before we kind of wrap things up, we would love for you to just tell our audience about where they can find you, if you have anything exciting in the works and how they can get to learn more. Awesome. Thank you so much. You guys have been so great. So thank you for this opportunity. And yeah, so on social media, I'm most active on Instagram, but I'm also on Facebook at the Dr. Yami spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R-Y-A-M-I. I also have a couple of websites, but you can find all of my websites from any website. <laughs> so dryami.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-Y-A-M-I.com, but there's also veggiefitkids.com, which is particularly for parents, especially for plant-based or plant curious parents that want to learn a little bit more information about raising plant-based kids. There's a ton of resources and videos on there. And then my book, you can find any major online bookseller. I love it when people order it for or request it for their local libraries or order it from their independent bookstore, their local bookstore. That would be great. They all have access to it. They can order it. And I have it in paperback, ebook, and audiobook, which I narrated myself. So if you're liking the sound of my voice and you want more, then feel free to purchase the audiobook. But I am happy to help. And so uh, I put a lot of information on my social media. Oh, and then you asked if there's anything that's I have in the works. Well, we just released a bean guide, which has been very popular so far because like I, like you said, fiber is my favorite F word <laughs> and beans are going to be your biggest bang for your buck when it comes to getting fiber on average, seven grams of fiber per serving, which is usually half a cup of beans. But a lot of people don't know what to do with beans or how, how to use beans or what recipes to use them in. So we just released a bean guide to walk you through that, the benefit of beans, even a little primer on how to cook beans from scratch and some really awesome recipes. And you can find that at dryami.com forward slash beans. I love it. Well, thank you for sharing that. And we hope to have you again sometime real soon. Oh, it would be a pleasure to come back. Thank you so much. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any other agency, hospital, organization, employer, or company. Assumptions made in the analysis are not reflective of the position of any entity other than the participants. The participants are critically thinking human beings. Therefore, these views are always subject to change, revision, reconsideration, and recalculation at any time. This podcast collaboration makes no warranties or representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness, suitability, or validity of any information, communication, exchange, and the participants will not be liable for any errors, omissions, or delays in this information, or any losses, injuries, or damages arising from its broadcast dissemination or use. All information is provided on an as-is basis. It is the communication recipient's responsibility to verify any facts.